So this Advent, we are going to be studying the genealogy of Jesus in the book of Matthew. And I I know genealogies are super exciting, so you're just thrilled that that's what we're going to be going through. Uh, But the genealogy is given here for a specific reason. And there's a reason that they're included in a number of the Gospels. And the reason that Matthew includes it specifically is that he is trying to prove and to show that Jesus is the King. He's trying to show that Jesus comes from a royal lineage. And so this is what kings would do kind of throughout history, right? Especially if you're trying to claim a throne that's open, as you would go back through and say, well, my father was so-and-so, and my grandfather was so-and-so, and look at my blood. Like, I have royal blood. I deserve to be the king. And so, but when we look at the lineage of Jesus, there's a number of things that stand out to us. Well, you'll see kings and average believers We'll see great and righteous people, and we'll see some really big sinners. But right in the mix of there, there are the names in the genealogy of Matthew, the names of five women. And these women stand out for a number of reasons. And the main reason they stand out is because women are normally excluded from the genealogy. You normally wouldn't include them. You would skip them. In fact, even Matthew, though he includes them, he skips a number of women. And why would you skip women? Well, because, you know... That doesn't really help your stock. That doesn't really give you anything as you're trying to claim that you're descended from kings. Well, who cares who his mom is? I want to know who the king was. That's what's important. And the genealogy has no problem skipping over other people. In fact, you'll see if you look close, it skips over lots of generations. Because fathered, it doesn't just mean like he's his direct father. It could be it's his grandfather. It could be his great-grandfather. It could be great 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 great-grandfather. And so as you look, you'll see even in Matthew, there's a number of places where it might skip three, four, six generations. So Matthew doesn't have a hard time skipping anybody either, but he doesn't skip. So it shows us these women are included intentionally. So we have to ask, well, why is it included? Especially if you're trying to say that you're the king, why would you add in some black spots to your claim? Why would you include some of these women, especially because some of these women don't have the best reputations? But so what I want us to do is I want us to see what do the stories of these five women have to teach us about Jesus? And what do they have to teach us about the kind of king that Jesus is? And so I want to, and that's what I think we do. And so the first one that we're going to look at, the first name that pops up in Matthew's genealogy is Tamar. And you can find Tamar's story in the book of Genesis, first book of the Bible in chapter 38. And this is an unusual passage um, of scripture, to say the least. One of the reasons it's unusual is it breaks up the story of Joseph. Okay, Joseph starts, and then we take a break, and then we have this, and then we get back to Joseph, and we move on. So it kind of it breaks it up. But that's not the only thing about it. There's a lot of details in the story of Tamar that are, well, somewhat embarrassing to speak of in polite company. Okay, our children are back in children's church learning about the Bible. They are probably not going to be doing this story. Okay, we, we don't really put this one on our flannel graphs. And I've, in studying this passage, I found some commentators went so far to say that this passage is unpreachable. Like, they were like, I don't know why this is in here. Why would God include this? And I told some of my pastor friends what I was going to be doing for Advent, and they're like, oh, that's great. And I'm like, well, but are, you're not going to do tomorrow, are you? It's like, well, yeah, I'm doing it first. It's in there. I'm not going to skip over it. And they just kind of laughed at me, like, well, good luck. Figure that out. Um, but here's the thing. I think if all of God's Word is profitable, Right? All of it is important. 
And especially if Matthew is going out of his way to include this story, there must be something in here that's not just interesting for us to talk about, but there must be something in here that tells us about what kind of king Jesus is. And I think that she's not just a key part of understanding who Jesus is. She's actually, this chapter is a key part of understanding who Judah is and even in making sense of the story of Joseph. So we're going to look this morning as to why Tamar is included in the line of Christ. And so we're going to look at four, uh, four different people this morning. We're going to spend most of our time on the first two. We're going to look at Judah, then we're going to look at Tamar, and then Jesus and ourselves. We're going to spend most of our time on Judah and Tamar. So as you know, the clock runs and we're still on point two, don't worry, the, the next two will go faster. Um, but so I'm going to go ahead, I'm going to read this for us. So if you would, if you're able, stand with me, um, just as we read through God's Word together in Genesis 38. And it happened at that time that Judah went down from his brothers and turned aside to a certain Adulamite, whose name was Hira. And there Judah saw the daughter of a certain Canaanite, whose name was Shua. And he took her and he went into her, and she conceived and bore a son, and he called his name Ur. And she conceived again and bore a son, and she called his name Onan. Yet again she bore a son, and she called his name Shelah. Judah was in Jezib when she bore him. And Judah took a wife for Ur, the, for his firstborn, and her name was Tamar. But Ur, Judah's firstborn, was wicked in the sight of the Lord, and the Lord put him to death. Then Judah said to Onan, go into your brother's wife and perform the duty of a brother-in-law and raise up offspring for her. But Judah knew that the offspring would not be his, and so whenever he went into his brother's wife, he would waste the semen on the ground so as to not give offspring to his brother. This is the point where you're wondering why in the world I chose this passage. And 10, and when he did, what he did was wicked in the sight of the Lord, and he put him to death also. Then Judah said to Tamar's daughter-in-law, remain a widow in your father's house till Shelah, my son, grows up. For he feared he would die like his brothers. So Tamar went and remained in her father's house. In the course of time, the wife of Judah, Shua's daughter, died. And when Judah was comforted, he went up to Timnah to his sheep shears, he and his friend Hira the Adulamite. And when Tamar was told, your father-in-law is going up to Timnah to shear his sheep, she took off her widow's garments and covered herself with a veil, wrapping herself up and sat in the entrance to Enim, which is on the road to Timnah. For she saw that Shelah had grown up and she had not been given to him in marriage. When Judah saw her, he thought she was a prostitute, for she had covered her face. And he turned to her at the roadside and said, Come, let me come into you. For he did not know that she was his daughter-in-law. And she said, What will you give me that you may come into me? And he answered, I will send to you a young goat from the flock. And she said, If you give me a pledge until you send it. And he said, Well, what pledge should I give you? And she replied, Your signet and your cord and your staff that is in your hand. So he gave them to her, and he went into her, and she conceived by him. Then she arose and went away, taking off her veil, and she put on the garments of her widowhood. When Judah sent the young goat by his friend the Adulamite to take back the pledge from the woman's hand, he didn't find her. And when he asked the men of the place, where is the cult prostitute who was at Neum on the roadside? And they said, no cult prostitute has been here. So he returned to Judah and said, I have not found her. Also the men of the place say, no cult prostitute has been here. And Judah replied, let her keep the things as her own or we shall be laughed at. You see, I sent this young goat and you did not find her. About three months later, Judah was told, Tamar, your daughter-in-law, has been immoral. Moreover, she is pregnant by immorality, and Judah said, Bring her out and let her be burned. And she was being brought out. She, as she was being brought out, she sent word to her father-in-law, By the man to whom these belong, I am pregnant. And she said, Please identify who these are, these signet and the cord and the staff. Then Judah identified them and said, She is more righteous than I, since I did not give her to my son Shelah, and he did not know her again. And when the time of her labor came, there were twins in her womb. And when she was in labor, one put out a hand, and the midwife took and tied a scarlet thread on his hand. 
saying, This one came out first. But as he drew his hand back, behold, his brother came out. And she said, What a breach you have made for yourself. Therefore, his name is called Perez. And afterward, his brother came out with a scarlet thread in his hand, and his name was called Zerah. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of God stands forever. Let's pray. Lord, I ask that you would just be here this morning. Um, I ask that you would show up in only the way that you can. Lord, would you reveal your word to us? Um, would you give us ears to hear and hearts to listen? God, would, it, wouldn't, would you help us see why you included this story in Scripture? Lord, would you help us to get a better picture of Jesus because of what we read this morning? We just pray this in your holy and precious name. Amen. All right, you can be seated. So the first point, um, if you're taking notes, is that Judah's pursuit of sin leads to death and destruction. So Judah's pursuit of sin leads to death and destruction. And we see right at the beginning, Judah begins this story by walking away from his family. So it starts in verse 1, it happened at that time, Judah went down from his brothers. And he went to turn to a certain Adulamite whose name was Hira. So he is leaving his brothers behind. And the first phrase says, at that time. Well, what is at that time? Well, right before this, Joseph just got sold into slavery. So Judah's leaving. His last action is saying, hey, maybe let's not kill our brother. Why don't we make some money off of this? So now he's got some money, and what does he do? It's not enough to just sell his brother to slavery. He walks away from his family. And this is a big deal in the ancient world. This isn't just Judas going off to college, he's spreading his wings, he's being his own man. No, he is turning his back on his family. He's walking away from God. He's walking away from the people of God. And this is clear, because what do you see? What's the first thing he does? Well, he goes and hangs out with people not of his family, with a certain Adulamite. And what's the next thing he does in verse 2? Well, he sees the daughter of a certain Canaanite, whose name was Shua, and he takes her as a wife, and he goes into her. It's one of the big things that Abraham told his sons. Hey, whatever you do, do not go marry those Canaanites. Don't go, don't mix with them. Don't go be with them. We talked about that last week. This wasn't, didn't have to do with um, any kind of racial thing. It had to do with worshiping their gods. Well, what's the first thing he does? He says, well, my family told me never to do this. I'm going to go over here. I'm going to do what I want to do. I'm going to go live with the Canaanites. I'm going to go play, do what the Canaanites do. I'm going to get a Canaanite wife. And the first thing he does is he just goes against the will of God. He's in full pursuit of his sin and just doing whatever he wants. Finally, he feels free. But you look more and see how he mistreats others in this passage. You notice his wife isn't named? His mother-in-law is named. He said, you know, the daughter of a certain Canaanite whose name was Shua. That's kind of how little his wife means to him is what the text is giving us this impression. Like she doesn't even get a name. And there's lots of names in this passage. Tamar's named his random friend is named. we got all the names of his sons. There are lots of names, but her name is excluded. And I think it gives us an insight on how, what he thinks about her. And we can see more what he thinks about her, how their relationship is, because look at the way it describes his sons being born. Okay, in three, so she conceives, she bears a son, and he, so Judah, names his son Ur. Okay, she gets pregnant again, but look, she calls his name Onan. Judah doesn't name his son. He doesn't name the second one. And then the third one, well, she, again, she has a son in verse 5, and she called his name Shelah, and Judah is not even there. He's out in Jazeb when he's born. So it's showing us this progression. It's not just, well, men are supposed to name their sons. It's, well, Judah was really involved in the first one, and now and he doesn't really care what the kid's named, and now the third one, he's not even there when he's born. Not because he's deployed, he's not really busy with work, he's just totally absent. 
And so the text is showing us this movement of him being a worse and a worse husband. So he's not a good brother, for sure, because he'll sell you into slavery if you make a man. He's not a good son because he walks away from his family and he abandons the, what his parents told him to do. And he's also not a good husband, but we see too, he's really not a good father because look at how his sons turn out. Two of his sons are so are wicked. They're really wicked. They're not just bratty. Okay, it's not just, well, you know, he really needed a firmer hand. His kids needed a good spanking or to go to timeout. That would have helped him out. No, they don't just have a bad attitude or they're kind of annoying. They are so wicked that God himself kills them. Okay, how bad do you have to be for God to decide, you know what, I have had it with you. You are done. I'm killing you myself. I'm not just letting an accident, I'm just doing it some other way. I myself am going to end your life because your wickedness is so great. How horrible do you have to be for that to happen? And in Hebrew, there's actually there's a play on, on words going on with the, the name of his first son, Ur. Right? So in, in Hebrew, Hebrew is a little weird with vowels because vowel, they, they only have consonants, consonants and vowels just kind of pop up um, below it. But so Ur's name in Hebrew, there's an Aleph and, and a Resh. So there's, there's two letters. Well, then it says, well, Ur is firstborn, but Ur seven. Ur, Judah's firstborn, was wicked. Okay, so Aleph and Resh, that's his name. Well, the word for wicked is a resh and then an olive. It's just his name flipped. Just flipped around that way. So what it's, it's a play on words and it's showing even more so like, look, these are just how wicked his sons are. And of course they would be because this is the kind of father that Judah is. And Judah's selfish pursuit of sin, like he is just pursuing sin, but it doesn't just lead to death and destruction for himself, but for his sons and the people around him. And you look at his next son, Onan. So in verse 8, Judah tells his son, okay, you need to go into your brother's wife and perform the duty of a brother-in-law and raise up offspring for your brother. Okay, I'm going to unpack that later in a minute to explain what in the world is going on here. Um, so bear with me. I promise I'm not going to skip it. I'm skipping it now, but I'm going to explain it in a minute. Uh, but what do you see Judah not telling him to do? You don't see Judah saying, hey, God killed your brother because he was really bad, so you should probably shape up and repent, maybe get a little less sinful. He doesn't say that. Judah doesn't even seem to realize how sinful his son is. He doesn't seem to understand how bad and how wicked his children are. But what we see is Onan, Onan continues his wickedness, and so Onan refuses to do his duty and give his a wife for his brother. And he does this for a particular reason, because what we see, right, is inheritance is a big deal. It, I mean, it's a big deal now if you get a really big inheritance, especially, surprisingly, that, that can be nice. But in the ancient world, it is a huge deal. And so what happens is the inheritance is going to get split between Judah's three sons. Okay, but the firstborn gets a double inheritance. He gets twice as much. So it's not just split three ways, it's split kind of four ways and Ur gets two of them. But now Ur is dead. So what happens is that goes to the next son. So now instead of Onan only getting you know, a fourth of what he should get, now he's going to get 75% of it. So this is a really good time for Onan. Okay, when his brother died, I'm going to assume, because he's again so wicked God killed him, I can assume the worst about him, I think, is that he was probably excited when his brother died, because this is great. I'm going to get a lot now when Dad finally kicks the bucket. And so that is why he refuses to give his brother-in-law a son. And so that's, that's the whole point of what this is supposed to be, is that you, know, you don't want... Well, I'll explain that again in a minute. But so what he does instead is he just uses his sister-in-law. He just uses her body. 
He's happy. He doesn't just say, no, Dad, I don't want to do it. I refuse. He's happy to get an extra wife that he can just do whatever he wants with. And so he treats her just for pleasure, which is what's going on in verse 9, to show that he is not trying to fulfill his duty. He is just using her and getting whatever he wants out of it. But God sees and God strikes him dead for what he does. In verse 10, what he did was wicked in the sight of the Lord, and he put him to death also. This is Judah's legacy as a father. This is what happens in his pursuit of sin. It leads to death and destruction all around him. And this is also what happens when we chase sin. This is what happens when anyone chases sin. Is sin will always lead to death. Sin always ends up there. It may not end up exactly how it does in this passage, probably for many of us. It may not even end up in God striking you dead or striking your children dead or striking you dead, but it will always lead to eternal death. It will always lead to destruction. And one of the places, where does it start? It starts with the decision to walk away from God's people. You can't walk away from God's people. You can't walk away from God's family. You can't walk away from the people of God. Try to do things on your own. Do whatever you want and expect it to end up anywhere good. Now, let's, let's turn our attention um, to Tamar. So point number two is that Tamar's pursuit of justice leads to blessing and transformation. So Tamar's pursuit of justice leads to blessing and transformation. So some of you might be scratching your heads and wonder, well, what do you mean justice? Um, and justice and righteousness are used a lot in the Bible interchangeably. So what do you mean that Tamar is being really righteous here? I'm going to show you why I think the text and why the Bible refers to her um, that way. You're allowed to disagree with me, um, but let's make sure we're going to the Bible and studying it and, and going where the evidence leads us. But we see is that Tamar has a problem. Okay, one of her problems is she's been trapped in two unhappy marriages. Okay, if you are married or if you have been married before, you know that marriage can be difficult. Okay? Even if you're in a wonderful marriage, even if you have an awesome and a wonderful and a loving and a just incredible spouse, um, like Brianna, my wife has, um, if, you're as <laughs> right? if you're so lucky to be married to me, right? Okay, but she'll tell you, she'll probably admit that even though I'm so loving and caring and wonderful and incredible, um, that it's not always easy to be my wife, right? There's still plenty of times that it's not great, um, right? Because marriage is difficult. Marriage is just hard, like any relationship is. No matter how great it is, it's going to be hard, even if you're married to a righteous person. Now, we don't know much about Ur at all, but we know that he is so wicked, again, God kills him. And God kills both of them. So what do you think marriage to a man like that would be like? How do you think it would be to be the wife of a man in the, in the ancient world, thousands and thousands of years ago, to be married to that kind of man? Some of you don't need to imagine that because you've been married to wicked men. And her second husband is just as evil as the first, and he doesn't care for her at all, and he uses and abuses her. What I love about this passage is that God sees. She probably feels like nobody sees. She probably feels like nobody cares, but God sees. And God cares, and God kills both of these men because of the way that they treat her. He sees enough to rescue her. And this is where the passage okay, starts to, to get weird again. Okay, And we have to remind ourselves, anytime we're reading Scripture, we have to think, what is, what is the context? Right? Context matters. Okay, the further back in the Bible you get, the closer to the beginning of the history, okay, you have to remind yourself, that's a long ways away from now. 
There's a big difference between how they lived then and how we live now, and not just because they have, you know, we have cell phones and trains and microphones and all sorts of other stuff. There's a lot of other differences. But the other thing we have to remember is at this point, okay, how much of the Bible did they have now? Okay, well, there's a pretty big chunk here that's missing. Okay, because it just hasn't been written yet. God hasn't acted in all the ways that he has. But so what happens, the other problem is when Ur died, he died without sons. And in the ancient world, to die without sons is to be erased from history. It's to disappear off the pages of history. And that is one of the worst fates that you can imagine someone could suffer. It's to just disappear forever. And so what they did is they had this ancient custom of what would happen is, well, when someone dies, if they don't have any sons, that, well, then their brother, their next male relative is going to marry their wife, and then their first son isn't really going to be their son. It'll be you know, the one who died son, so that their line can continue, so that they will not be erased. And so this is what's happening. This is what Judah tells Onan. He says, okay, hey, your brother, we need to make sure his line doesn't disappear, and so you need to go and make sure that there are enough sons to do that. That way his line can continue. But we also need to remember that God promised Abraham, right, that his line was going to continue forever. He was going to have more descendants than, the star, than there are stars in the sky, than there is sand in the seashore. So this isn't just some patriarchal weirdness for these people, for the people of God. It's also trying to fulfill the Abrahamic covenant. It's not just about an inheritance. It's, trying, it's not just about male privilege. It's trying to fulfill the covenant that God made. And later, we'll see, not now, but in Deuteronomy 5, this is going to get put into the law of Moses. And Moses himself is going to say, this is what you do. If your brother dies and he doesn't have kids, you need to go marry his wife, or the next male relative needs to do this. And actually, that passage then gets weird and says, okay, if you refuse to, if you will not do it when your brother dies, you can go read it. The wife is allowed to take your sandal off in the middle. Get the crowd together. Get the whole town around. She's going to take your sandal off and then spit in your face, and we're going to change your last name um, to something super shameful so that everyone knows just how terrible you are. So that, this lets us know this is incredibly serious in the ancient world. To us, it's really weird. It's okay to acknowledge it's weird. It's weird, okay? And we don't do it anymore. And there's a reason we don't. But what we need to see is this is not just about Tamar having baby fever. Okay, this is not just Tamar wishing that she could have a husband and wishing she could have some babies because babies are so cute and they're just wonderful and she wants to have them. That is not what is going on. What she is doing, she is not just someone trying to get a child and doing everything she can. She is actually pursuing righteousness and justice. She is doing and she is being active to make sure that something happens that Judah isn't caring about. And you can also think of, we're going to talk about her, um, I think, next week, but think of Ruth. Right, the book of Ruth is a story we're probably much more familiar with if you've grown up in church. And well, wow, why are we looking for the kinsman redeemer and Boaz? Oh, he's the closest relative. Okay, that's this. That's just an extension of what's going on in this passage and in Deuteronomy 25. Of, well, some, your line can't pass out. We need to have more sons. But so, so look, we see that Judah sends her away. In verse 11, Judah said to Tamar, his daughter-in-law, remain a widow in your father's house till, you know, Salah, my other son, grows up. And Tamar goes out and remains in her father's house. See, Tamar's other problem, she's really just Judah's property. She doesn't have any rights. She can't do whatever she wants. She can't go marry another man. Unless Judah says that she can, she has to do whatever Judah tells her to do. She's a prisoner of him. 
If someone is in pursuit of a sin who's so wicked his sons are terrible, she just has to wait to see if he's going to be true to her word. But she sees now that he is not at all. He has no intention of sending his last son to Tamar in verse 14. And she takes off you know, her widow garments. Well, kind of at the end, you see, because she saw, well, the last son's grown up and she hasn't been given to me. Judah is not doing what is just and what is right. He is not doing what he is supposed to do. And Samar comes up with a plan. And this again, this probably makes us even more uncomfortable, but she is actually following the law. She's following the customs at that time, what they all would also do in the law. The ancient nations at that time would have a similar practice where if the sons can't honor the marriage, then the father-in-law needs to, or the father-in-law should. But we see is that she actually, she waits too. She's not just doing, she's not just trying to commit adultery or to, to be weird. She waits until, in verse 12, Judah's wife, Shua's daughter, who again isn't named, till she dies. So now his wife is dead, and then she also still waits till Judah is comforted. Okay, she waits till the period of mourning is over, till it is the just, right, okay time for him to have fulfilled what he already should have done. She is all she, she's doing the only thing she can do, which is tricking Judah into doing the right thing, into doing what he is supposed to do. And she uses Judah's sexual sin against him, which says a lot about Judah that she knows this plan is going to work. Okay, that lets us know more about who he is. But so she disguises herself, and we see again, it mentions she takes off her widow garments. She, again, she is doing what she is supposed to do. She is living as a widow, as the law requires, as she is supposed to live. But so she takes off that and puts on a veil, puts on a disguise. And you notice in verse 15, Judah sees her, and well, he thought she was a prostitute. She doesn't actually say, hey, I'm a prostitute. He just sees and goes, oh, perfect, here we go. This is what I'm here for. And Judah doesn't even have any money, okay, but he still wants her services. And so Tamar wisely asks in verse 18, okay, give me your signet ring and your cord and your staff that is in your hand. So she wants things that are unmistakably his. Unmistakably his. Because she knows what she's doing. She wants things that make it clear to everybody, something she can't forge, something she can't fake, something that will do this. And you know, she doesn't take money. She's not doing this to get rich. She's doing this because it's the just thing. And then look at verse, so the, the deed is done. She's conceived. But look at verse 19. She arose, went away, and took off her veil, and she put on the garments of her widowhood. The text is drawing attention there again that she shouldn't be a widow. She shouldn't be having to do this. She should be... Shalah's wife. She should be. Judah should have already done what he was supposed to do, but she's doing the only thing that she can do, the only thing in her power, so that justice is done. And now Judah sends his buddy to pay for him. Um, and this part always makes me laugh, which would make Judah sad. But so the, his buddy goes and is like, "Hey, I, well, I went. And nobody's even heard of a prostitute around there. And I kept asking." which has to be kind of embarrassing, which I think Judah knew. That's why he didn't go. He sent his buddy to do this. And then Judah finally says, you know what? Let's let her keep the stuff. Like, we don't want to be laughed at. I'm sorry, Judah. I'm already laughing. Um, you know, cause, but also, what is that? He doesn't want his sin to be public. He doesn't want people to know what he has done. He's worried about how he's perceived. Verse 24, three months later, Judah was told, Tamar, your daughter-in-law, has been immoral. Moreover, she's pregnant with immorality. And look how Judah immediately responds. Bring her out and let her be burned. 
real quick. No trial. Don't need to ask what happened. Don't need to talk to her and find out, well, really, was she immoral? Was she assaulted? Did something else happen? No, nope, doesn't have to worry about it. We're just ready to go ahead and kill her. What was he doing a verse before? He, was, he couldn't find the prostitute he was supposed to pay money for. He had plenty of his own sexual immorality, but his response is, well, let's kill someone else with theirs. That's our response so often, isn't it, with our own sin. Things we're guilty of, we see someone else doing it, we can be really quick to jump to judgment. Ah, I can't believe they would do that. Meanwhile, we're doing it on our own. And most of the times, honestly, if we're honest with ourselves, a lot of the times we get angry at other people's sin is really because it's our own and we're seeing our own reflection. And so Tamar comes out for the trial in verse 25, and she sent word to her father-in-law. And look at how she does this. By the man to whom these belong, I am pregnant. And she said, well, please identify who these are, the signet and the board and the staff. It's interesting to see what Tamar also does. She doesn't say, hey, Judah, it's your kid. Dummy. Gotcha. I win. She doesn't do that. I would be tempted to do that. That's, that's how I would respond when I, when I win, when I trick people. But she actually is inviting Judah to come clean. She's confronting him. She's revealing. She's holding up a mirror to his face and inviting him because she tricked him into doing what he already should have done. And Judah's response His response is the key to understanding this whole passage. Verse 26. Then Judah identified them. He didn't have to do that. He could have lied. Who would know? If just he sees them, burn it, say it. Nope, don't know who these are. Obviously fake, not mine. Just go ahead and kill her, cover up my sin even more. But no, he, he identifies them. He says, she is more righteous than I since I did not give to her my own son, Shalom. He declares that Tamar is not just just, she's not just okay, she is righteous. And he's not saying, you know what, we're both wrong here. You know, we both kind of messed up. I messed up, you messed up. You know, I messed up a little more than you messed up, so like, we're good, let's call this off. No, this is a trial where the verdict is death. The verdict is death for tomorrow. What he is saying, and he's already decided she was guilty before now, but he is declaring, no, 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 she is righteous. And the term for righteousness that's used here is most often used forensically, right? Or it's used um, in court cases to declare, to stamp down and say, this person is righteous. It's not, he's not just saying... She's innocent. He is saying that Tamar is righteous. Tamar is innocent. I am not righteous. I am not innocent. She is right. I am wrong. And this word for righteousness is the same way to use to describe the way that Abraham is righteous and to describe our own righteousness that we gain through the blood of Jesus. And this is significant because there's only a few handful of people in the book of Genesis who are declared righteous. Abraham Noah is also called righteous. He's not necessarily declared righteous in the same way. And then Tamar. Just those three people. That should blow blow us away. That should surprise us. But we see, and why is she described this well? Because she is being faithful to the Abrahamic covenant when Judah is not. She was trying to fulfill that when Judah wasn't. And God's word definitively, I think, is, pretty, is pretty telling us Tamar is actually righteous. 
that what she did was pursuing justice and pursuing righteousness, and she's honored in the text by telling us she is righteous. She was in the right. And later on we see her name's not just repeated when we get to Matthew. Her name is repeated a couple other times. The gener- there are a few generations. At least we know of King David and one other king who named their daughters Tamar. Okay, I don't know if I would, after reading this the first time or hearing this story, I don't know if that would be something I would want to name my daughter. Okay, But especially in, in Hebrew and in ancient Israel, they would repeat names if they were really honorable. Okay, You wouldn't name your kids something shameful. But so it tells us too, the people of Israel, when they thought of Tamar, they thought of a righteous woman. They thought of somebody who was worth naming their children after. And what we see is that her pursuit of righteousness, it, doesn't just, it actually leads to the total transformation of Judah as a person. Her righteousness, her pursuit of justice, helps Judah realize his own injustice, his own self-righteousness, his own sinfulness, and he ends up, before Genesis is over, becoming righteous himself. Verse 26, it ends with, and he did not know her again. He didn't know her again. He, he stopped. So we see the days of Judah going around and sleeping with foreign women and engaging in prostitutes and all of his sexual morality. It is done. He's finished. And he's actually the first person we see in Scripture, as best I can see, that actually acknowledges their own sinfulness. Not after they've been caught, but who when gets the chance to come clean, does so. And he doesn't blame like Adam blamed his wife. He just admits his and acknowledges his own sinfulness. He doesn't downplay his sin. He doesn't try and weasel out of it. He doesn't try and blame Tamar for his sin. He just comes clean and says, she's righteous and I am not. And then his life begins to get back on track. And after this, we see Judah actually goes back to his family, right? So then, chapter 39, we go back to the story of Joseph. You may wonder, well, why did we take this whole detour? Well, if you don't have this detour, Judah doesn't make much sense. In the story of Joseph. See, in the beginning, he's, hey, let's sell our brother into slavery. And then at the, the end, in Genesis 44, he gives this long speech. It's one of the longest speeches in the section of Joseph, talking about, you know, I know you're going to take our brother, but what, take me instead, because you know what? I deserve it, and this is the right thing to do, and please. He is a completely changed man. And his speech and his transformation, him acting that way, is what leads Joseph to breaking down in the first place and and weeping and their whole family is reconciled. And why does that happen? Well, that happens because of what the seed is being planted from what Tamar did and helping him realize and recognize his own sinfulness. She leads to his own transformation. And Tamar's action is fully vindicated by the fact that she, in 27, she has twins in her womb. Okay, twins are a great blessing. Okay, both times that Brie was pregnant, I kept joking that we were going to have twins. She did not like that joke. Okay, but back then, this was seen much more as a blessing. Now it's kind of, well, we've got to buy two of everything, and it sounds like a lot of work. Um, it is, but in Bible times, this is always seen as a blessing. She's not just given one son, she's given two sons. Better than you could hope for. It's the best blessing you could get in a pregnancy, kind of, at, at this point. And her actions, they don't just save Earth's sinful line, but they actually save Onan's line. Both wicked sons, their lines continue, not because of anything they did, but just because of the actions of Tamar, and they're replaced by new sons. And what Tamar also does is she actually secures Judah's line of descendants. She saves all of his sons. Now all three of his sons can continue to have more sons. 
But what she also enables is Judah's line to be blessed. Judah gets to be the one that Jesus comes from. There's three brothers in front of Judah. We can forget that. Judah's not the firstborn. Three other brothers who should have gotten the primary blessing of having the line of Jesus come from them. But they all miss it because of their sin. Reuben misses it because of his sexual sin. Levi and Simeon miss it because they go out and they murder a whole village. Okay, Judah should have missed it too. Why? Because it wasn't for the actions of Tamar. He would have walked away from his family, would have left him, and would have continued engaging in all of the sin and morality he is. But he's not. He's transformed. He's a different person. And now Jesus comes from the line of Judah. If it wasn't for this story, we wouldn't be singing songs about how God is the, Jesus is the lion of the tribe of Judah. We wouldn't tell stories of David and Solomon and Boaz. We'd be talking about totally different kings and different men. But Tamar's pursuit of justice, it doesn't just lead to a blessing for herself, but a blessing to all of us being able to be blessed by Jesus and Judah's line being blessed. So she is included in the genealogy, and deservedly so, because she's the reason all of the names after her get to continue to become from Judah. And it's not just because she has a womb and she got pregnant with some twins, but she's included because of her righteousness. So what can we learn from tomorrow? One of the things I think we can see here is that our pursuit of righteousness and our pursuit of justice can actually transform other people. And I think it does. I think righteousness and holiness, that it should be spread, that people in being around us should want to be more like Jesus. And not because we, we tell them how wrong they are and how sinful we are and they make them feel terrible, but because we embody Christ when we enter into another space. And because we act so much like Jesus, because we talk so much like Jesus, because we love so much like Jesus, that it leads all the people around us to want to become more like Jesus themselves. Have you ever been around somebody, um, you, you think of someone who when they come into a room, they just make you feel better. Just put a smile on their face. When they leave, you're kind of sad, but you're just kind of, you, your spirit feels lifted. You were just so happy you got to hang out with them. That's how everyone should feel when they come into contact with us. Not just because we're so bubbly and so awesome, but on, on a more spiritual level, people should leave our presence and want to go love Jesus more. That our own pursuit of righteousness should not just lead to us being righteous, but to righteousness pouring out of us like a fountain into all those around us. So let's turn to Jesus. Point number three is we see that Jesus pursues sinners. Jesus pursues sinners. That's a big part of what this story also teaches us. So remind us that Jesus came down on earth for wicked sinners. He did not come down for the righteous. Jesus did not come down for the people who had it all together. He didn't just come down for some people who were broken and needed to be knit back together a little bit. He didn't come down for people who just needed some awesome self-help tips and now they can get their lives on track. He came down for those who were stuck deep in their sin. He came for terrible fathers. He came for prostitutes. He came for people who left their families behind. He came for sinners. And I love the fact that not just... Jesus didn't just come from Judah, but Jesus came for Judah. Jesus came for people who spend their lives running after sin. If you've been running your whole life away from Jesus and towards sin, towards whatever you want to do, Jesus has been running after you that whole time. And this passage is honestly a bit of a mess. 
Okay, there's a lot of things happening here that, that make us uncomfortable, and we're uncomfortable with the darkness of sin, but we also, if we're honest, a lot of the times we're uncomfortable with our own sin. We're uncomfortable with our own wickedness. We're uncomfortable with the own darkness in our hearts. And when we see our sin in the mirror, it brings us shame. But this is why Jesus came. This is why Advent exists, because the people in darkness have seen a great light. We are in a world trapped in sin and darkness, and we need Jesus to come down and save us from ourselves. And Advent is all about longing for the return and longing for the coming of Jesus. Longing for the Jesus who pursues sinners. Who doesn't just let them get away. Who doesn't just think, well, it'd be nice if maybe some sinners came. You know, we're mostly pretty good here, but we could sprinkle some sinners in the mix of this church, and that might be nice. No, Jesus comes for sinners. We don't just, we don't just need a Savior. We need a king who came down from heaven just for us. What this passage reveals to us as well, what we can see about Jesus is that no one's sin is too great. No one is too far gone. No one's past is too dark. No one is so unlovable that Jesus does not want to pursue them, to invite them into his family. And so our, our last point for, for us is that we need to pursue honest self-reflection. We need to pursue honest self-reflection. And what I mean, I'm not talking about some kind of moral um, self-improvement. Uh, this isn't self-help. It's not like hey, we need to wash our faces and feel like champions today. What I mean is we need to be honest with ourselves like Judah was. Like Judah, when confronted with his own sin, owned up to it and acknowledged, yes, I am a wicked sinner. That's what we need to do. Tamar was a mirror for Judah. She revealed the depths of his own sin and he was willing to be honest about it. We need to be honest about who we are. We, all of us, need to acknowledge our deep-seated need for the gospel. Our deep-seated need for Jesus to have come for a sinner like us. A sinner like me. We have to admit that we are... We have, that starts with the many that we are Sinners. Unbelievers need to admit this, that this is your problem. You cannot save yourself. You are desperately in need of saving. You are trapped in sin. And there's nothing you can do to escape it by yourself. That's why Jesus came. Jesus came for sinners like us. We also need to be honest with ourselves as believers and as unbelievers that Jesus is pursuing us. If you're a sinner, this is good news because this means that Jesus loves you because Jesus loves sinners. And Jesus came for you. Jesus died for you. Jesus took His sin upon Himself and died on the cross, bearing the weight of it so that all of us could be saved. He has adopted us into His family. He has given us new life. The Gospel isn't just good news for sinners. It's also bad news who think that they don't really need Jesus. But the truth is that all of us desperately need Him. The temptation, especially if you've been a believer for a long time, but for any of us, is you can read a story like this and just shake your head and think, man, I'm so much better than Judah is. And so much better than all of these messed up sinners. We need to look in the mirror and honestly reflect and not just compare ourselves to other sinners, but compare ourselves to Jesus and realize, wow, we really fall beyond short of the perfection that is required of us. And as believers, we don't just need to remember that, but remember that Jesus is still pursuing us. Jesus didn't stop pursuing you once you became a Christian. 
He still loves you, and your sin cannot drive Him away. As long as you admit who you are, that you're a sinner in need of grace, a sinner who needs Jesus still, we serve a King who came down for sinners. And that's why we long for His return. I, you know, I want a King who loves sinners enough to die for them. Who loves sinners enough to transform them and change them into a new creation, into new people like He did with Judah. To make us a new creation. So one practical way we could do this um, is just a suggestion. You can think of something else. But the, the next time that you look in a mirror, be honest with yourself. Next time you look in a mirror, be honest with yourself and, and see yourself as someone, one who's a sinner, but a sinner that Jesus is desperately pursuing. And stop running and turn and pursue Jesus. Pursue justice. Pursue righteousness. Just recognize that Jesus is a wonderful Savior and a wonderful King who came for desperate sinners like all of us. And I'm so grateful that He did. I'm going to pray and invite the worship team to come up and lead us in one more song. Let's bow our heads and pray. Lord, I just thank You that You are a King who came for sinners. Lord, that You are a King who didn't come for people who have it all together, who didn't come for for people who just have made a mistake once, but you came for, for the wicked, for the messed up, for people like Judah, for people like Tamar, for people like me, for people like us. Jesus, would you help us stop running from you? Would you help us to acknowledge every single day that you love us, that you want us, that our sin cannot keep you away? All that we need to do is to acknowledge how much we need you. To acknowledge the depths of our sin so that we can acknowledge the greatness of our Savior. And we pray this in your holy and precious name. Amen. Why don't you stand as we continue to worship through song. I am so thankful for all that the Lord has done for us and that we can be strong because of him. Our benediction today is from Romans 15:13. May the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace in believing, so that by the power of the Holy Spirit you may abound in hope. Abound in hope this week. You're dismissed.